0: Good evening to you. So glad you're here tonight. I didn't know, by the way, if you're here without a Bible, uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and uh, you'll be fairly lost on Sunday night without a Bible to follow along. So just get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. I just I didn't know um, how many of you would come out this evening. I suspected we'd do all right. The Sunday nights, I mean, on Mother's Day, you know, I mean, it's just the big ding. Resurrection Sunday. Now I got to deal with Super Bowl Sunday kind of thing. And I thought to myself, if we take a hit on the night they're showing the Academy Awards, I quit. (laughs) I mean, if the assembling together of the saints isn't more valuable to the saints, than the Academy Awards to celebrate movies that none of us can see. Uh, For the most part, then what in the world are we wasting our time with? And so good to see you here tonight. Chronicles, first Chronicles, chapter 14 this evening and our journey through the scriptures. Last week, we left off with David's unsuccessful attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the new capital of Israel at the time. In order to, as a, the ark of the covenant being a representation of God's presence, bringing God everything that He's about right back into the center of the nation uh, of Israel, and He was unsuccessful in transporting uh, that ark into Jerusalem, and uh, because they violated God's word and how the ark was to be uh, transported, and so uh, since there was, a, they weren't doing. It was a. They were doing a right thing, but they were doing it a wrong way. Now, we live in a world. I don't say that all of the world that operates this way, but a lot of it operates this way, and increasingly more and more of it operates this way. And the old saying we've heard is that the end justifies the means. If the goal is high enough, then you can cut corners, you can disobey, you can do wrong in getting to that goal. Uh, if the goal is significant enough and you, so you see all kinds of cutting corners in order to accomplish this great goal, the problem with that and the reason we must never be conformed uh, by that thinking as Christians is that as Christians, the way the means is as important as the goal. Because people don't just look at our lives and watch us as Christians, and they do watch us as Christians in the world. That's important. It should be that way because it's how they're going to come to know God in a very large part. As the old saying goes, we're the only Bible that most people are going to read. They're going to read our lives until that what they see there then causes them to turn to the word of God itself. And so. They don't know, oh, here's this is an end and this is a means. They look at our lives and believe that everything is representing the God that we serve. So because there's that kind of weightiness to both the end and the means, it's important that the totality of our lives be characterized by obedience to God's word. And so they've got a David's got a great goal to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. But the means that it's happening is disobedient to God's commands. And so God shuts the whole thing down. It's important for us to understand that the Bible says that it makes it real easy for us that everything that we do, whether it's a means or an end, Everything that we do is to be done to the glory of God, which means it's to be done in obedience to his word. And so God shuts the whole thing down because while they're having a great time, God, because of the disobedience, he can't enjoy himself. He wants to enjoy himself. He wants to bless it. He can't bless it. And he's going to he's driving home an important lesson to David. But that's where it stops. And so David's going to try again in chapter 15. But in the meantime, there's like a three month block of time in between the two attempts to uh, bring it in the ark into the into Jerusalem. And chapter 14 is kind of an encapsulation of the events of that that three month period. Now, Hiram, king of Tyre, he sent messengers to David and he sent cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build David a palace. And so David now this is a description in chapter 14 of the prosperity of David's He's now the king of both the, the southern two tribes. Now the northern uh, ten tribes. He's the king over all of Israel. And so there's peace in the land now. There's prosperity coming to the land. There's godly leadership in the land. And so he here is this. Uh, he begins to gain favor with the nations, the leaders of the nations around him. Some of them, well, let's just put it this way. He gets everybody's notice. Some of them are happy about him being the king. Others of them are not happy. Hiram happened to be happy about it. And he saw David is, a, uh, you know, up and comer. And he's a, and he's a good king. He's going to going to do a great thing in Israel and he wanted to bless David early in his reign by sending down not only all of the, the materials but also all of the craftsmen in order to build David a proper house, a palace. So it would be pretty neat somebody walks up to your front door and says hey, you know, we've noticed that God's on your life and all of that and so we've got everything to build your house right here outside and start to go forth. So this was the favor that uh, that he had with his uh, at least the neighbor in Tyre. And so David David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. And so God, David saw these as God's blessings coming uh, from him being obedient to God's call and then fulfilling God's call. Also in in that age, and I hope uh, today as well, certainly in the body of Christ, uh, children in those days were viewed as a gift from the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a gift from the Lord. So to have uh, a enlarging family was also a sign of God's favor. And so David then took more wives. I'm not going to it's pure disobedience. It gets him in trouble. But that's part of. Uh, you know, uh, Second Samuel, not a part of First Chronicles, so I'll refer you back to all of that. But he took more wives in Jerusalem than he already had, and he begot more sons and daughters. And these are the names of his children who he had in Jerusalem. Uh, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elphat, uh, Ephelet, uh, Noga, uh, Nepheg, Jephia, uh, Elishama. be Eliada and uh, uh, Ephelet. And so these are the children that were born to him. And again, he would have recognized this as God just continuing to bless his family and his reign. Now, it's not all blessing when you obey the Lord. There's a lot of blessings in obeying the Lord. But to be a friend of God means that you're going to also become an enemy to other people. They're not good people, but that's just the way that it is because there's a spiritual warfare that goes on in this world. There's a lot of people in this world that hate God, and they're going to hate God inside of you. And that's a great way to look at persecution when it happens to us. You look at yourself and say, why are these people persecuting me? You know, if I wasn't a Christian and I was just whatever, they wouldn't be persecuting you. All right. Well, if they're not persecuting for you, you for what you are intrinsically or naturally, then it must be some something that you're carrying. And of course, we carry Christ with us and the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the persecution against us is actually a persecution against him. And we can never expect the world to treat him in us any differently than it treated him when he was in the world. And you saw what the the religious leaders of the Jews and others, their opposition to him. So that's part of our portion as well. And so when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, All the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it, and he went out against them. And so the Philistines were perfectly happy with David being a kind of a tribal king over the southern two tribes of Israel, headquartered in Hebron. And uh, as long as he was a part of this kind of seven-year civil war that was between the north and the south, Uh, before he became the king over all of Israel, the Philistines didn't view him as a threat. As soon as he entered into the fullness of God's calling upon his life to be the king over all of Israel. Now, this was too much power. Uh, they saw an imbalance of power occurring. He they viewed him as a threat. And so now they're going to attack him to try and take him down a couple of notches. And so this is the way that it is in uh, not only in the physical realm as it was with David. He's going to fight a physical war uh, here. But it's also true spiritually for us. Every t- I don't care who we are. If you obey God's calling upon your life and you take the steps of faith that he calls you to take, then you're going to get noticed by the devil. You're going to get noticed in that spiritual realm and there's going to be opposition against you. I'm thinking about this next week. There's a particular project that I'm looking to complete that has a the potential to be helpful in the body of Christ. It's not a big deal. Don't think I'm doing something big. But I don't want to tell you what it is either because I want to torture you. So there's this little thing that I want to do and all. And it's interesting, though, that the warfare against it has already begun this week. And so sometimes the warfare occurs and you go, all right, God, I must be here and you all right. You kind of get familiar with it. But I remember, and I think it's important if you're a new Christian. I remember when I was a new Christian and I. Gave my life to the Lord. Some people, they give their life to the Lord and and it's a this is honeymoon for six months or a year, two years or whatever. And everything's victory and all of these blessings coming their way. God's cleaning everything up and everything's changing wonderfully in their life. I don't begrudge them. It's wonderful. I'm a little bit bitter, but I mean, I try not to let it out. But there's this is great honeymoon period to the whole thing. And it's fun to watch all of it. And they're just about to write their autobiography, Damian Kyle, Man of Power and Faith. And they think that honeymoon period is going to be the way that it always is. And then ultimately, God calls them to do something. And uh, and then all hell breaks loose, literally the whole spiritual realm. But I remember when I became a Christian, I thought my life was going to improve. And it did on a lot of different levels. But I was unprepared for the spiritual warfare that hit me. Um I remember when I was growing up, my mother had she had some mental health issues and uh, so that she really struggled with. And, um, you know, treatment back then for what she was dealing with, pretty barbaric compared to the way things are today. But it was a pretty depressing kind of household. And I had determined when I grew up, I was never going to be I was never going to be depressed and I was going to never be around depressing people. So here I become a Christian and all of a sudden I'm depressed. I go to work. I haven't had a depressed day in my life. And so I go to work on Wednesday, the night of the Wednesday night, Bible study and the whole thing and getting together. And it's just like I got hit by a truck. I come home from work and we're going to have dinner and get ready to go and all. And I just want to crawl into a bed and go to sleep. This is so weird. I was disgusted with myself. I'm not putting you down if you deal with that on a daily basis or something like that. But it was completely foreign to me. And I did not understand spiritual warfare at that time. And didn't realize that Satan was in these little steps that I was taking trying to take me out early on on things. And so anytime you take a step of faith in ministry, the opposition is going to occur. But it always means that the enemy is threatened in some way by what it is that he sees God is doing in and through your life. And he has watched God change lives all through history, and he has seen his kingdom pay a terrible price when people come to know God and then become obedient to him. And so there's that attack that occurs. And so we shouldn't be surprised when that attack occurs. And so here is this attack of the Philistines against David. He hears about it. And he goes out to meet them. And the Philistines went out and they made a raid in the valley uh, of Rephaim. And that was very, very favorable ground for the Philistines to attack the children of Israel. Very favorable high ground for the children of Israel. So they got themselves in a choice place for battle. Notice the first thing that David did is a part of this attack. He didn't like, OK, sharpen the swords and all these things. The first thing he did was he went to prayer. And he asked the Lord, he inquired of the Lord, and he said, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And so prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God, our humility. It's an expression of our faith, which we want to honor God with. And so David takes and he asks, What do you want me to do here, Lord? And then the Lord gives him his instructions and a promise of victory. The Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them. Into your hand. And so, uh, in in obedience here, he went up to Baal Perazim. David defeated them there. And then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. And so it's kind of like the picture that he has in his mind. Apparently, the children of Israel hit the Philistines with a very concentrated A frontal attack on their front lines. So the idea is sometimes in the winter we see it when there's flooding and a levee will give way. And maybe there's been some ground squirrels in it or whatever. And it'll start to leak. And then pretty soon the power of that water just begins to wash the whole levee away. And the water just pours through. And and everything is overwhelmed. That's the way the children of Israel broke through the lines here and overwhelmed the, the Philistines. With this victory. And so he called the place as a result. Baal Perizim. And when they left their gods there. Now this is very very sad. When number one you have to carry your gods out into battle. And then uh, number two. When they can be dropped. I hate that. I just would hate to be dropped. I would hate to be dropped as a human being. I would really hate to be dropped if I was a god. That would just. I just would have higher expectations of being a god. And being dropped in the middle of, of the battle. And so uh, here they've got these gods that they've taken out into battle to give them uh, victory here. And these gods can't even keep themselves from being captured in battle. I mean, there's a lot of problems with these gods that they're uh, serving here. I, just, uh, I like to think of it when I run into this. And there's several places in the Bible that kind of bring this kind of a thing up. And I just look at my life. I don't need a God I have to carry. I need a God who can carry me. I'd like you to think more highly of me than that, but that's just really the fact of the matter. And in the God of the Bible, I have that kind of a God, one who will carry me. Can you imagine having to take care of yourself and then take care of your God as well? That's a terrible weight to bear. And so David took these gods and then he had them burned with fire, uh, just to to destroy them, so that they wouldn't be a stumbling block to the nation. Then the Philistines, uh, they once again made a raid on the valley. They're not through. I don't know if you, uh, if if you've ever noticed, the devil comes back. So man, I, who, boy. I, Lord, the way that you worked right there was just like the water going through a levee. I think I'm done with the devil for the rest of my life. Devil? No, so, uh, But that's not the way that it works. The devil comes back. The Philistines came back, made a raid on the valley. Therefore, David said, I know what to do here. It's a funnel-piercing attack straight in their line. And then they just give way, just like a levee under floodwaters. Well, that's a tendency that we have. Begin to think that God does everything the same way, the same way, the same way. I mean, it was successful this way the last time. And so, of course, God's going to do it that way this time. We have to be careful of that. And David's careful of that early in his reign here. He realizes this is a new day. This is a new battle. God might have a new battle plan. And God might have a new battle plan. And he does have a new battle plan here. God does not lead his people by formula he leads his people through prayer when god gets reduced down to a formula or you see a christian book that says here is the victorious christian life is these three points or this, this is this or this and god gets reduced down to a formula i just want to run in the other direction from the book it doesn't operate that way Everywhere you see the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world, it is because someone who is a part of that advance is engaged in a personal relationship with God and is receiving instruction from God. They are not working off of a formula. And then what happens? There's great fruit that occurs there. And then the body of Christ, God bless us, but we're quirky this way. We then want to surround that thing that God did, and then we want to analyze it. We want to reduce it to a formula and then write books on it. And never is the book about the personal relationship with God that led to that victory. It always gets reduced to a formula. We have to be careful of that in our lives. And the one way that we manifest the fact that we recognize this as a danger in our lives and and the way that we are careful about it is to pray to God about everything. This is a new day. God, you might do this in a different way. And God does things a lot of times in a different way, not because he couldn't give them another victory by a frontal assault. He could easily do that. But God's doing all kinds of things. He's he isn't just wanting to give us victory and he isn't just wanting um, the world to see uh recognize the victory that he is giving us in whatever kind of battle we're in or what kind of ministry we're in. He'll sometimes work in a way over here and people get to see it. And then he does something entirely different over here. And then sometimes he'll make the odds even more impossible in the situation because the whole idea is that he gets seen. It's not the whole the, the, the supreme thing isn't that. I'm victorious and my name gets in the headlines. The big thing is, is that God gets the glory for it and he is glorified as people see him work in all these different kind of ways. So David recognizes this. And so he says to the Lord uh, again, he inquired of the Lord. What do you want me to do here? And God said to him, you shall not go up after them. No frontal assault. I want you to circle around behind them, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. So apparently they're going to ambush them. And then here's the signal for when you should attack. It shall be that when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. So God is going to make the mulberry trees blow or something like that and sound like troops that are marching. Then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And so David did as God commanded him. And they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as uh, Gezer. And so uh, the Philistines... Were never they were broken at this point in time. They never were a factor in terms of opposing the children of Israel during the rest of David's reign. And then the fame of David went out into all lands and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Now, however much they understood what was behind all of it, David understood that this fame came from and, and all of this favor came on the fact that he recognized that he was an underservant. That, uh, that in prayer, he was acknowledging, God, you are the boss. Jesus, you are the head of the church. Now, what do you want us to do here? We'll do that in, in order that you would be glorified. And so this relationship with God, this uh, prayer that David had with the Lord, resulted in uh, him being becoming famous for the glory of the Lord. Now, chapter 15, uh, we come in to this second attempt by David to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city uh, of Jerusalem. And what's the old saying? If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So that's what he's going to do. You know, it's a funny thing. Um. That saying is probably no more true than related to Christian service. I don't care who we are. We're all going to fail. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to mishear the Lord. We're all going to do something goofy. And like they did for David, it was out of ignorance. He didn't know. going to learn the lesson from it. And then it becomes a lesson for life. I wish I... I wish I could learn all of the lessons in life and in the Christian life um, from some kind of a correspondence course on how to always do it right. That's not how I learn a lot of what I learn. It's by mistakes. And then you go, ouch, that hurt. Remember the bumper stickers? Stupidity should hurt. That hurt. And uh, so how should we do this in the future? And then we learn what does the Bible say about about doing this? Never, ever, ever quit your service to the Lord because of a failure that you have made in endeavoring to serve him and it falls short. That's just part of the deal. It's just there's only one person who's perfect in the whole wide world, and that's God. And other people aren't perfect and we aren't perfect. We can put that on ourselves to be that. The other thing about this with David is that this was a very Public humiliation, this mistake that he made and God bringing that whole uh, transporting of the ark to a screeching halt. That was a that was a very deep, humbling experience for him early in his reign. That's a very, very hard thing to happen. One of the things about somebody being in a position like David is that they learn their lessons like all of us do. Uh, by the mistakes that we make so often, but so often all of their, those things are public. That's one of the things, probably my least favorite thing about being a pastor and so much of it being a pub, having a public side to it, though there's a lot of non-public side to it, is that You make so many mistakes in public that you just want to hide for self-preservation. You don't want to do that stupid thing again or say that dumb thing again. Or if I could re-say that or preach it or whatever it might be. So there's all that going on. But you just have to work through that, whatever the ministry is, and you have to continue even after failure. Because God's got great victory here and a great future for David and the nation. And his desire, his goal is going to be accomplished. But... He, he had to learn something uh, before that happened. And so this importance of figuring out, OK, what is the right thing to do here? And and then doing this, doing it rather than saying, OK, I can't take this. I'm going to stop serving in the children's ministry or becoming a missionary or whatever it might be. So David built houses for himself uh in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and he pitched a tent for it. And so he fashions a tent probably made after the law of Moses, resembling the tent that was used by Moses and the children of Israel in their wandering uh in, in the wilderness for the forty years. So there's a the he takes and makes a replica of that tent and he puts it there in uh Jerusalem. The tabernacle, the The tabernacle where the worship of the Lord was occurring at that time. Uh, David's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the lone furnishing of the Holy of Holies. He's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to this tent in Jerusalem. It will be the only furnishing that fills that that tent or that tabernacle in Jerusalem. All of the other furnishings were at the tent in Gibeon. Where the children of Israel continued to worship the Lord. So the table of show bread, the altar of incense, all of these things are located at a different place. Under Solomon, God is going to take and consolidate all of it, all the worship concerning him, to be in Jerusalem at the temple. But there's this kind of a little bit of a transition period going on, where, and we'll see how God is leading in all of that. So he pitched this tent to house this. And then David said... No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. Uh-oh, somebody read the Bible. And I bet the Levites, can you imagine? I you ever have something happen where you can't even go to sleep until you find out what did I do right there? You know, so I bet that after that first day they went. What does the law say about transporting the ark of the covenant? And so it was to be carried by the Levites, or uh, uh, the ark of, uh, of no one was to carry it, but by the Levites, the priests for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before Him. Forever. And then David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem. So this great crowd to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. So he kind of had. Remember, I this. Uh, according uh, the earlier historical book told us that when they the, on the first attempt to transport the ark of the covenant, he invited 30, 30,000 people came out I like to make my mistakes in front of no one or in front of my wife. But thirty thousand, that's a pretty big crowd. So you'd think here on this situation he'd look and say, Okay, let's let's invite like five of my closest friends and we'll slip this into the city and see what happens. But He knows now we're in line with the word of God. And so it's going to be great. He invites the big crowd again. They're excited to be a part of it. And then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Kohath, uh, uh, Uriel, the chief and 120 of his brethren of the sons of uh. Uh, Asaiah, the chief, two hundred and twenty of his brethren, the sons of Gershom, Joel, the uh, chief and one hundred and thirty of his brethren. So he's loaded up with uh, with Levites and priests here of the sons of uh, Elzaphan, Shemaiah, the chief and two hundred of his brethren of the sons of Hebron, Eliel, the chief and eighty of his brethren of the sons of Uziel, uh, Aminadab, the chief and one hundred and twelve of his brethren and and David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, Uriel, uh, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, uh, Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourself, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. So it's like, okay, here we go. Now we're going to do it for because you did not do it the first time. So here we learn where the fault lay. David said, I mean, who did who was in charge of uh, transporting the ark biblically and finding out what was going on? So he says, because you didn't do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against all of us. Because we did not consult him about the proper order. And so the priests and the Levites, they sanctified themselves. And to bring up the ark of the Lord of God, God of Israel and the children of the Levites, they bore the ark on their shoulders by the poles. It was to be carried as Moses had commanded, according to the word of God. And again, as I mentioned last week, the ark of the covenant representing the presence of God, God's presence is carried into this world. Old covenant and new covenant is carried by men and by women, people. So we carry the presence of God into the workplace tomorrow, into the neighborhoods, into the apartment complex, into wherever we go tomorrow and through the week. We are carrying as human beings. It doesn't go by cart. You can't hire this out, any of that kind of thing. And so here they are now fulfilling the the uh, uh, what God's word said, but the imagery of it was significant to God. And so, David, um, is there Obeying this now, obeying God's word. I, I like to think it, with this transporting of the ark. It's it's very important to me related to uh, this fellowship. That, uh, that God gets to enjoy Himself here. That's just super important to me. So we want Him to enjoy our services. We want him to participate massively in our services. There is no service if he doesn't. And so that's very, very important. And so their obedience here now allows God to enjoy the process himself and to bless it in the way that he wanted to. Again, he's our father. He's a father, a father loves to bless his children. I mean, and nobody's like our Heavenly Father. He so wanted to be involved. He wanted to bless. He wanted to make it the greatest day of David's life. And I'm convinced that this was the greatest day of David's life. Nothing, there was no desire of his heart for the rest of his reign that was greater than bringing the Lord into the center of the national life of the nation of Israel. And And so now, God gets to enjoy it, too, and bring the fullness of his presence to it. And then David, he spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers accompanied by instruments of worship. And so he wants all of this to be celebrated by worship music that's going on and all. And I do like this line. He, he again, he spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers and the singers were to be accompanied by instruments of worship. The singers were to be accompanied by the music. The words are more important than the, wor- than the music in a worship song, always. Sometimes, you know, you can hear this worship song and it's like, that is the greatest music. That is so great. The words are really lousy. But, man, I like to play that and to sing that. If the words aren't right, you realize it's as wrong to write or to sing an unbiblical song as it is to preach an unbiblical sermon. And and so here, the words are the most important. And then the music is is a lesser place. It plays a support role. The words are the most important. And so all of this great procession was to be, Uh, characterized by music and singing and Uh, stringed instruments and harps and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. And so David wanted this whole thing to be marked by joy, marked by praise and worship. And so the Levites appointed uh, Haman, the son of Joel, and his brethren Asaph, the son of Bechariah, and their brethren, the sons of Merai Ethan, Ethan, the son uh, of Cushiah, and with them, their brethren of the second rank, and we'll drop down there all. Now, well, let's see. Uh, Zachariah, Ben Azel, Jeshu Mahash okay, Obed Edom, God bless them, and uh, J.E.L., the gatekeepers. And so these were the guys that were supposed to open the doors up to allow everything, the procession in. The singers are listed here uh, Heman. Uh, Asaph, Ethan, they were to sound the symbols of bronze. And so there's the singing, the clashing of the symbols just a great, great uh, celebration. Uh, Zechariah, these other guys, they had uh, the stringed instruments that they were playing. And then we go into verse 21 and the men are listed that were. Uh, to direct the harps uh, uh, that were playing. And then uh, Chennai, the leader of the Levites, he was instructor in charge of the music because he was skillful. So there was a guy that was over the whole, like the head worship leader of this whole thing that was going on. So the buck stopped somewhere to oversee worship to make sure that uh, it was right. And so this was his uh his position, and then we notice that his skillfulness was noted. And so uh, it was important for someone skillful to have that position. It's important for us, every one of us in our service to the Lord, that we don't give God slop, that we don't give him the leftovers of our time, we don't give him slothfulness and sluggardness in our service to the Lord. A ministry that we do as unto the Lord is to be done the very best that we can do it. We may not be the best in the world at the thing that he's called us to do, but we can be the very best that we can be, and that's what we should be. And it's very easy over time to serve the Lord for a while. And and it's, a, it's, a, it's a candidly kind of a distressing thing related to me in terms of trends in the body of Christ just in the 30 years that I've walked with the Lord is how God is getting a lower and lower and lower priority in people's lives in an increasingly larger group of people that profess themselves to be Christian. And so that standard is dropping and then people aren't being diligent in what God has called them to do, so it doesn 't matter whether it makes the headlines or it 's famous or it 's public or it's private or whatever. all of us should do the very best that we can do in what God has called us to do. I remember when I was um, playing basketball a little bit in high school and, and then in junior college. It was fascinating to me to watch um, to watch the young men. So often, not always, but so often, who had the greatest talent and the greatest skill just frittered away. They they never took. It would just be these people that had limited talent, but had great determination that would end up carrying uh, the team. And it was a, a good lesson for me to see early in life because Paul uses a lot of menace, uh athletic imagery related to ministry too as well. But the point I'm making is this. For those of you who God has called and he has given you great, great skill in some particular area, you are one of the best at what you do for the Lord, whatever that is. Never rest on that. Never coast with that because you'll regret it to the end of your life. You'll come to the end of your life and you'll wonder what would God have done? What impact could have I had for the Lord if I had taken the skill and the gifting and the calling that He had given and then used it with all of my heart to move it forward? And that's the only way we're ever going to find out what God's plan was for our lives if that, if there's that kind of not falling asleep and just saying, well, I'm better than everybody else. It not realizing God has maybe given you a gift that's two or three times the gift that somebody else has and you shouldn't be comparing yourself to them. The way that we can come to the end of our life just like Paul did and know that we took that gifting as far as it could go is is then to take that gifting and then not become lazy with it, slothful with it to use it for the Lord, to develop it in the hands of the Holy Spirit to the full thing that it ought to be. And so skill, yes, God takes his strength is made perfect in weakness, all of this. But it 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 shouldn't be a weakness because of uh, willful slothfulness or neglect of gifting or calling. And so I like to see this and I like that um, uh, that. Editorial comment of the Holy Spirit here. He was in charge and it was because he was skillful. And then uh, Barakaya and Elkanah, they were doorkeepers uh, for the ark. Um, these other fellows here. Uh, and the priests they were to blow the trumpets before the ark of god as it was being transported and obed edom and uh, Jaiya, uh doorkeepers of the ark and so here are all these arrangements that david made you know the bible says that god's work is to be done decently and in order so there's a great work of the holy spirit that's happening in this event but there's structure and there's order to they're, they're complementary they're not uh, contradictory to one Another And so David, the elders of Israel, the captains over thousands, went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. David wanted this to be a joyous celebration, and it was. And so it was when God helped the Levites. You don't have to underline everything I tell you to underline in the Bible, but underline it with your eyes, those four words, God helped the Levites. Levites. And that that represented God's pleasure with what was happening. Their obedience allowed God to fully participate in the event. I'll tell you, there there is nothing like walking away from something where everybody goes, man, did God fully participate in that event? (laughs) And that's exactly what happened there. And obedience allowed him to do that. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all of the Levites who bore the Ark, the singers, and uh, Cheneiah, the uh, music master, with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Now, a linen ephod was a, a garment of the priest, the priest wore. So it was a sleeveless uh, linen kind of robe so during this whole uh, processional of, of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem David didn't wear his kingly robes he wore the garment of a priest There are three great offices in in the, the Old Testament kind of economy of the Jews prophet priest and king and David was two of those three. He was a prophet and he was a king. But I'm convinced that he would have traded in both of those in order to be a priest. He longed for God to worship God, to be fully engaged in the things of God. And here is this day where there's the transportation of the ark. And he, this was the closest he was going to get to be a priest his whole life. And so he takes on their garment. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And thus all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn and trumpets and with cymbals and making music with stringed instruments and harps. And it happened. So this is beautiful, wild celebration. It happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, that Michael, Saul's daughter, David's first wife, looked through a window, saw David coming in, dancing and whirling and playing music and all of this. And it tells us that she despised him uh, in her heart. Now, uh, this is a, a kind of a low point for Michael and certainly a low point uh, for David here. So here's David just Unrestrained. Joy and praise and worship to the Lord. And all of it's biblical. He's not doing anything that's unbiblical here. She looks out the window and she, as we're told here, she despised him in her heart. It doesn't say that she despised what he was doing, it's worse than that. It's deeper than that. She despised him. She despised where all that he was doing came from in his love for God and his unrestrained worship of the Lord. And so she watches this. She thinks his conduct is, you know, kind of undignified and not worthy of a king. And you've got to put some distance between you and the people and you conduct yourself like that. My father would have never done anything like that when he was the king. It doesn't matter that he died at the hands of a Amalekite. But anyway, she had her expectations of, of all of this. And so uh, we know from the other account that David came in and she really lit into him for his conduct. Made him feel ashamed for the way that he had worshipped the Lord uh, on that day. I think that that uh, obviously it hurt David because of his response, which we'll see in just a moment and all. But again, I'm convinced that this was the greatest day in David's life. Nothing came close to it. And then to walk into the door and to have your worship and love for the Lord to be scorned and to be despised by your wife. I mean, wow. David, I'm convinced that's a qualifying statement. It doesn't mean you have to be convinced. I'm convinced that David was a very private man. If David was like this super big extrovert showboat. You know it's all about me kind of thing. I mean, his reign, he made his mistakes, he he committed his sins, but he he it would have been completely different than the reign that we see recorded in scripture. This was a man who was content in a relationship with God, wherever God put him. He would have been content to shepherd. That flock for his family for the rest of his life, if that's God, what God had for him, the title, the position, the acclaim, the fame, it didn't matter to him. What mattered to him was his relationship with Lord, the Lord and then to be faithful with wherever God took that. And so she comes in and she puts a knife right into the most important part of his life in mocking his relationship with the Lord and the reason that she did it is she didn't understand anything about it. Nothing about what made David tick, what was important to him, any of those uh, kinds of, of things. She didn't understand it, and so she just comes in and, and, uh, and uh, abuses him in this way. And I think it's very hard, and some of you are in the middle of that kind of a situation. Or you have been. I mean, one of the worst things that we experience in life is to have... Our relationship with the Lord, the beauty of it, the intimacy of it, to be uh, scorned or to be mocked by somebody we care about, especially a husband or by a wife, we must never allow a mocking or a scorning to ever stop us from going in our relationship with the Lord. That person becomes their own problem. But I think that Michael is a great warning uh, against making fun or mocking or despising the sincere worship, biblical worship of another person. There's a lot of different ways to worship the Lord all around the world. You see people worship the Lord in so many different ways. I've been in parts of the world just God's grace and been a part of it for one reason or another, and I'm in the middle of a worship service and how people are worshiping the Lord and just being the good Scot and Irish man that I am. I'm like a, is it a duck out of water or whatever that is. I'm just standing there and it's like, wow, I'm enjoying all this thing going around, on all around me, but I can't get the... The rhythm of the deal here like that, you know, the thing. So, But I enjoy all of it. And my spirit enjoys it thoroughly. But I look pretty reserved in that environment, but it's not a quench. I love what I'm in the middle of. There's so a lot of different ways to worship the Lord. And we have to be careful never to scorn or mock the sincere worship of another person's uh, direction to the Lord. And I think that if we ever do that, we make fun of of that kind of sincere worship being directed to the Lord. It's a time to step back and to ask ourselves, am I still a worshiper of the Lord? Because when a person is a true worshiper of the Lord, this other person's worship may be a little bit different. But I I recognize that. That person is enjoying the Lord as much as I do when I worship the way that I do. And that God is enjoying himself every bit as much as when he enjoys himself when I worship him. So there's a lot of diversity in the body of Christ. I'm not talking about kookiness that really misrepresents the Lord. It's unbiblical and and it's a mar to the reputation of Christ in the world. I'm talking about something shorter than that. There's a lot of diversity on that. And, and to be very, very careful to be respectful of other people's worship. If we aren't respectful, it means, wow, maybe we've never experienced that kind of, of an intimacy with God, or we're not a true worshiper of ourself, and that person has a lot to teach us, not us teaching them anything. Then in chapter 16... So they brought the ark of the Lord, uh, the ark of God, brought it into the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So mission accomplished. And they offered burnt offerings, which was an expression of total consecration to God, peace offerings, which spoke of thanksgiving before God. So they're using every way that they can to just praise the Lord and dedicate themselves to the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And uh, he then he distributed to every one of Israel, both man, And woman to everyone, a loaf of bread. All right. A chunk of meat. So they've been offering all of these offerings, a portion of these offerings where could be eaten by the people. And they, they offered up a lot of offerings for the crowd that was there. So everybody got a little bread. You got your carbs, got a slab of meat, a piece of meat. That's a steakhouse right there, I'll tell you. So they got that protein, and then they got a cake of raisins. That's your dessert. In the ancient world, you didn't go to get a milkshake. So the raisins, that was like, all oh, right, the sweet tooth. I got my payday candy bar right here. And so that's what was given to them to eat. And he then appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And uh, so he begins to set up kind of a long-term arrangements for the worship that was to occur there at the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Asaph, the chief, uh, was, and then next to him was Zechariah, then uh, Jael, and then uh, all of these people, and then uh, Jael with the stringed instruments and the harps, but Asaph made music with the cymbals. Uh, Benaiah and uh, Jahaziel, the priests regularly blew the trumpets before the ark of the covenant of God. And so what David wanted was every time people came to the tabernacle to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, he wanted them when they, the closer and closer they got to them, for them to hear worship music and praise music being lifted up to the Lord, and so he takes and and we 're going to see He makes it a part of his his reign that these people are going to be uh, they 're going to be covered they 're going to have food clothing cared for, but I want there to be worship music going on. at at this tabernacle, and he made those arrangements for it. So you can just imagine, put yourself in the ancient world. You know, no iPods, and they don't have stereo systems, and they don't have, you know, turn a switch and have the music on. David, you know, considerable commitment here that as you would approach, you'd hear Asaph, you'd hear the music, you'd hear the words, you'd hear the instruments and all, and all of it just bringing you right into the, And then you would come to know the words. You would start to sing it the closer you got and all, and it just would impact everyone. And David's attention to detail related to the worship of the Lord. I mean, that's the kind of thing that comes from someone who knows the Lord, knows him deeply, and uh, wants what what he knows about God to be everybody's portion. And so he's a special guy, what he does here, and he recognized the importance of worship music. In a relationship with God, of course, he was the great psalmist of Israel, so he wrote many of the psalms, most of the psalms and the book of Psalms. And so he had a great uh, gift for writing uh, the lyrics and then also putting things to music, though sometimes he would delegate that to Asaph. Asaph would put his words to music and uh, but he, he appreciated the value of worship. We'll close here for tonight and we won't head into the psalm itself. We'll pick that up next week. So, but if the worship team would come forward, it's, uh, get a chance to worship the Lord a little bit in closing here. But I want to just um, in light of, of David's um, emphasis upon worship to remind us in, in uh, our own lives of the importance of worship music in our own relationship with the Lord. It's good to have it on the radio. It's good to have it in the iPod. It's good to have that. Um, yes, learning the word, the devotional time, those kind of things and prayer and all that. That's all foundational, fundamental, so important. But so is the relationship. We have a need to say things to God. And there are things that God wants to hear from his people that he won't from hear from anyone else but his people. So you might look at your Christian life tonight. Maybe you're new to the Lord and you don't know anything about this. Or maybe you've walked with the Lord for 40 years and worship has no place any longer in, in your life. It's just like I'm a word guy and I pray and that's it. And, and to, to stop and reconsider a little bit. The singing of worship music and praise to God isn't supremely for us. Though it's a blessing and it does something good in us, it's supremely for him and he has a right and a place to hear our worship, to hear our thanksgiving and to hear our praise. And if you've begun to neglect that side of your Christian life, I would just challenge you and a very friendly challenge to this coming week. Um, load some of that music into your iPod. Make sure you've got the station turned to where you can hear, you know, the K-Love or the K-E-Q-P here, which is a station that's a part of this church, but you've got to kind of be in town to hear that. Or whatever it might be, have it playing at home or streaming it online or something like that, and see if it doesn't do something significant in your relationship with the Lord. And if you've been away from it for a long time, see if you don't, it just doesn't flow into you and say, Wow, I have been missing that and what that does in me. David understood and recognized the value of it and important that we do also. So, Mike, would you lead us in worship tonight?